Hey everyone, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 34th episode of The Writ Podcast. The conservative leadership race is really starting to shape up, as we now have not only the rules of the contest, but multiple contestants now in the running. First there was Pierre Polyev, and then earlier this week, both Leslin Lewis and Roman Baber declared their candidacies. On Thursday, it was Jean Charest's turn, and as I'm recording this, Patrick Brown's entry into the race is expected to be imminent. Some other names have also been circulated as mulling a bid, but it looks like Polyev, Lewis, Charest, and Brown could be the four front runners. So there's lots to discuss this week. Chad Powers is from Crestview Chad Strategy. Chad Powers? Is he related <laughs> to me? My God. He is. Uh, he is Chad slow. Powers and Tim Rogers. I think I did I've that actually back you, in 2017. I've always thought of you like a brother. And, and I, you, and I, you. All right, let me get it right. Chad Rogers of Crestview Strategy, Tim Powers of Summa Strategy. So we're off to a good start. Um, so let's get right into uh, the rules because the rules are out. They're new, um, but not really all that new. There's a few small changes. Uh, Chad, do you see anything there that really has a big impact on how this race is going to unfold? The, the, the numbers, right? Like when the party sets rules, um, these are the rules that the party sets. They then create something called a Leadership Election Operations Committee, or LEOC, as the cumbersome acronym. LEOC has the right to manage the race however they see fit and can't be appealed. So the rules are the limits. So this is the party rules for the race are like the constitution. LEOC will be like the uh, statutes that come from a legislative assembly. They can solve all the smaller problems with uh, more technical rules. Big blocks, um, you have to be a member by June 3rd. That, so that means there's only 80 plus days uh, for any candidate to acquire new members if their strategy involved adding to the mix of people who aren't on the membership rolls. Uh, race has to be done by September 10. It's a single transferable ballot again, or a preferential ballot, uh, meaning every candidate has to have an eye not on just who they're bringing in to vote for them, but where their uh, successive ballot uh, support is going to come from. Um, Seven million bucks is pretty healthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I looked at the rules and I didn't have a line by line version of where um, they, they were compared to previous, but they looked alarmingly similar to the two previous processes. I, th- there was nothing that, that reeked of conspiracy or agenda to me. They, they were quite clean. Tim? Although I'm sure somebody will find that. Uh, being a LEOC alumnus to the original LEOC that uh, oversaw the Stephen Harper Belinda Stronic race, I can assure you that the PTSD never leaves you from your time at, at, at LEOC. I would say two things, Eric. I think what was interesting for me, and I think this will be a first point of battle in the campaign, is uh, how long have you been a member of the party to be a candidate? You've seen people challenge Mr. Charest around all of that. So soon we will know how long he's been a member of the party. Leoc does have the ability to waive that requirement. Uh, and the second thing I think is still the obvious, which is the date. Well, one of the dates Chad talked about, June 3rd. There's two big phases of this leadership race. And that is the one between now and June 3rd, if you're a serious candidate, and the persuasive period afterwards. But most of the energy is going to be on this period right now. Because again, I think it goes back to Polyev's strategy has to be, I want to win this on the first ballot. And you've already seen him well ahead out of others to try and do that. How do Mr. Sheree and potentially Patrick Brown get enough support to create the conditions for second and third ballots. So that June 3rd date and that sprint now until that date will be fascinating. 
If you're Pierre Poiliev, though, do you like June 3rd? Because the gap between June 3rd and September 10th is longer than the gap between the member eligibility and the voting day in 2017 and 2020. So it does seem like the Conservatives either decided they need more time to check everybody's membership, or um, if you're Pierre Poiliev, you know, you, maybe you have an extra month um, that you're taking away from your opponents that they would have had in, in the previous races. The one thing I would I would say, though, is, is remember the other agenda for the folks sitting at Conservative Party headquarters. They're trying to make sure that if they hire Dominion voting systems again, there's time yep. to move in the machines and the manpower. They're trying to make sure their Canada Post contracts can be intact to get uh, ballots processed. You're talking about an Ontario election that's going to occur on June 2nd, one day before the membership cutoff. It, it's, it, I would guess in the difference between June, August, September 10, uh, the resource crowd saying, please give us every extra day to pull off a process that doesn't goof. Uh, because if you make the process too short and you stress the resources too much, it is incredibly hard to do a preferential count cleanly uh, on a mail-in ballot uh, and announce it in a fixed number of hours. Remember last time it involved the hiring of hundreds of people, uh, two types of mail cutter machine stymied the whole day by six hours because they were a millimeter off in how they sliced open envelopes, uh, right? Like these are, these. Th this is a very, um, this is a still a very physical process because they want the integrity of a physical ballot and doing it and reporting it out cleanly is super hard. So I, I wouldn't discount the, the less political agenda theory that uh, September 10 was people begging on the inside to say, give us every minute we can to execute. If you're Polyev, you, you were concerned about the cutoff date on new members mm -hmm. because your plan is to win what's there. Yeah. Uh, Shara and Brown's plan is to add more. Yeah, and one thing I did notice from the rules, uh, which is more of a throwback to 2017, is that there will be potentially the ability to have uh, voting day uh, locations uh, rather than just in the mail. It's obviously uh, they would have probably done that as well in 2020 had there not been, you know, the pandemic. But um, so that that is another little wrinkle that I suppose just adds to the kind of Big logistical term. thing to watch for from Leoc, and I predict you're going to hear people talking about it. Will the party ban prepaid credit cards? Mm -hmm. uh, two sides to this argument. One side says there is a significant member of the membership base and a significant number of Canadians who do not carry a conventional credit card. Uh, they prefer to bank in cash, use their checkbooks, uh, not uh, use commercial borrowing uh, on a credit card. So they need access uh, for ease of processing. When the day comes, they have to buy a membership online and they otherwise don't use a credit card. The flip side says the fastest way to commit membership fraud in a leadership is $10 prepaid Visa cards or MasterCard cards. Um, so watch closely when Leoc stands up if there is a ruling or a challenge immediately. The other really cool thing in these rules in terms of transparency is any single member of the party can bring a prima facie case uh, of a complaint against uh, a campaign uh, on an issue of membership integrity uh, or the integrity of their campaign or candidate. And they, it's the, the party and Leoc are forced to deal with it. Uh, now, the onus is on the complainant to prove, but it, it is, um, it's akin to what the Charter gave Canadians. Uh, if it's one of the big areas, we have the right to scream all the way into the Supreme Court, not spend 10 years going through the appellate courts. So um, I, I like the cleanness from the outset in these rules, who knows how it'll mm -hmm. be in practice, of an attention towards integrity of the process. You know, even in filing your first deposit, if you've gotten any donations, uh, you've got to declare who they are. There's no under this amount. You don't have to tell anybody. 
a uh, lot, lot of, and, and frankly, I attribute that more to Ian Brody than anyone else mm-hmm. than that, uh, Stephen Harper's first chief of staff. But people forget Ian Brody's role way, way back when, when the parties merged. It was Ian who showed up in the old party headquarters and unpacked Absolutely. the banker's boxes and stitched the legal and financial uh, structures together to make the new party. So if anyone asks a question, what is the precedent on why the party has this rule or this structure or this process? Ian Brody is actually the walking human uh, library on how all of this has been built from the start. Funny Ian Brody fact here, Chad, uh, Chad and uh, Eric. Eric. Ian Brody, because he was that aforementioned party director, gave me the only thank you present I ever got from the Conservative Party, some fine glassware for being really? part of LIOC in 2004. I don't know where it is anymore. I just want to pick up on something, uh, two other points Chad made. One, I mean, it's not like the Conservative Party to be cynical and crass doesn't have practice now at running leadership. So I'm hardly surprised that the rules are getting more and more refined. If they've done one thing well, bar COVID and voting machine problems, it's it's run leadership. So they know how to do that. And these seems that seem like fair rules that will have less contestation, though in every leadership, somebody will poo and paw and scream and holler about something. The other thing to your question around Pierre, I agree with Chad. I think Pierre would have liked this one and done by July 1st, so uh, which would have meant a much sooner cutoff of, of memberships. I also think the extension until September 10th, I agree with everything Chad said about building time for the party. It also be, it builds in time to deal with unforeseen circumstances, like if we do unfortunately have another wave. Um, it also allows for what the fiduciary responsibility of the party should be in leadership roles is to showcase the party. Look, um, if we, we, we know we have three, four candidates as of today, I guess, Mr. Charest, Pierre, Leslie Lewis, and Roman Baber, Patrick Brown probably going to announce this weekend, others rumored, you want to showcase all of that. That's a pretty good diverse field. So why not take the opportunity to do that? Because the conservatives can legitimately say for the first time in months that, you know what, we have something to be pleased about, uh, a contest and a race that has generated significant interest and brought very interesting players in to contest. That's a good thing. You need to, as the the body responsible for the party, sell that as hard as you can. Yeah, I think... I would say at this stage, the, you know, the roster of candidates may be more interesting than the last two races, even if in oh, 2017 sure. you did have oh, yeah. I mean, Kevin mayor, O'Leary and Max Bernier. But. Former federal minister and premier, uh, a mayor and former MP, um, um, you know, uh, Roman Baber, uh, who, if any of you have ever seen the show Veep, I think Roman <laughs> Baber may be the real world model for Jonah Ryan's character. Absolutely. Uh, you, you know, like the... the so, you know, it's decent slate. Uh, Leslie Lewis, you know, environmental lawyer, uh, member of caucus, uh, black woman in the race. Uh, that is not the conservative. That is not your father's Oldsmobile, right? This is, this, is a, this is a race with real qualifications and names. And Scott Akinson would want you to say that he is still seriously considering and entering this, and he's an interesting candidate. Mayor of Huntsville has a very different view, I think, on, of the way the conservative party ought to operate than Pierre Polyev does. So we'll see. 
All right. Well, speaking of your father as Conservative Party, Jean Charest is uh, getting into the race. And uh, as we're recording this, we're recording this on Thursday uh, morning. Now, he was supposed to announce uh, Thursday night in Calgary. So assuming he didn't fumble a football, uh, he should, you know, the, we shouldn't expect that anything goes wrong tonight. He already made some interviews with the National Post and La Presse. He seemed to be talking a lot about resource development, uh, hitting a lot on fiscal uh, uh, conservatism and his role in, you know, the economy in Quebec, which uh, at the end of his time was in a pretty decent shape and is today in a pretty decent shape. Um, so, Tim, I'll start with you and then Chad. What's his path and what does he have to do right now in the next you know, month or so, just as he's getting back into this? Well, Eric, it has to be real. He launched a Twitter account on Thursday morning. I mean, you don't launch such a thing unless it's really true. What does he have to do? Well, I, I think first and foremost, obviously, he has to sign a hell of a lot of people up in Quebec, uh, Ontario, elsewhere, of course. But his play is going to be, I've got to suck up the territory, soak up the territory where I don't think Pierre Polyev has as established a pattern or route to victory. So, cause it does get down to selling memberships and populating ridings first and foremost. He also at some point is gonna have to, to move people to his camp, but that's probably a secondary thing because first goal is getting people signed up and getting support in as many ridings as he can and winning as many points in ridings as he can. You can see his slogan, which is very deliberate, it would seem is built to win. So he is going to try and create a different contrast. Polyev has won, but Mr. Charest will be, look, you can be whatever you wanna be in the conservative party and stay in opposition forever, or you can elect me and I will give you the best chance of winning the election. As the three of us both know, there are lots of conservatives for whom that will be an appealing call. Now, he's going to be met with, as we've already seen, questions on his conservative purity. Uh, Peter McKay dealt with that. It uh, didn't work out too well for him. Others have, have dealt with that. Mr. Shirey, that will be the principal attack, I think, from uh, Mr. Polyev and Mr. Shure. So he's gonna have to find a way to manage that because the one thing that will be different, I think, for Mr. Shure in this campaign compared to others that he's dealt with is his genial nature isn't conducive to all out warfare. He will need people at a certain point in time to push aggressively back at the messages of Pierre Polyev and challenge Pierre Polyev's character lack of experience as he will describe it, and other challenges he may see Pierre Polyev having. Mr. Chad worked for Mr. Shure, he can tell you that is not something he's super comfortable doing. Um, Jean Shure is a, is a truly lovely guy. Absolutely. Uh, he is smart and charming and accomplished. Um, so I will preface, um, I've not come here uh, to praise Caesar, but to bury him. Um, <laughs> Um, Jean Charest's candidacy will be the candidacy of the forgotten Conservative Party voters of uh, uh, Red Tory, uh, Ontario, and Atlantic Canada. Mm -hmm. I predict as we get more polling and delegate tracking, he won't even be the most popular candidate in Quebec. Uh, Charest will have as many problems in Quebec as he will in the rest of the country. Um, but I, but I think the the what Mrs. Thatcher used to call the wets, the the squishes. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Reds in our party, the people who think the only thing wrong with the Conservative Party is its conservatism, um, uh, will be the base of his support. 
he will um, really struggle to present an argument to conservatives that is not a version of I've come here to fix you because you're broken and you're flawed. Uh, and, and for the, the length of this race, that's a dangerous proposition because mm-hmm. that really says I'm putting all my bets on new acquisition, not on a mobilization. Uh, Mr. Shari also has a problem, which, uh, which is called Bill 21. Uh, and, and it's a reflection of the conservative caucus, not necessarily the party, but the conservative parliamentary caucus is much closer to a break than people realize uh, over the issue of Bill 21. Uh, Quebec MPs are willing to walk. Patrick Brown, uh, so there's this much touted newspaper reporting this week of a secret uh, von Ribbentrop-Molotov pact between the Shara and Brown campaigns. Um, Bill 21 makes that entirely untrue and impossible uh, because Brown has been defiant uh, on Bill 21. Uh, so if Shara's campaign has to be a proxy for protecting the defiantly racist politics of Quebec through Bill 21, uh, I don't know the, how that helps with acquisition when a big acquisition in party leaderships is often done with new Canadians. Uh, so Structurally, again, no one can explain the plan to me uh, of where the, the, the Share play is to acquire enough of the current party. Um, uh, so uh, color me skeptical. He'll make Polyev uh, or Pierre, uh, sorry, Pierre or Patrick or whomever the other front runners are better candidates because they will have to prepare because he's a serious individual and a serious Canadian. Uh, and it's going to mean they can't float through any debate. Mm-hmm. They can't float through any national editorial board. But remember that Shara's proposition is to all of the liberals and media class in Canada who would never vote conservative, but are quite able to construct all the things that are wrong with the party and fix it. He is their perfect candidate. All right. Well, that's a, a vote of confidence from Chad Rogers on Shara's chances of winning. But, you know, I do want to hit a little bit more on what you said about a potential divides within the caucus, Bill 21 mm-hmm. being one of them. Um, just the, you know, we did see earlier on in um, when there was talk about the leadership just getting kicked off, there were some Quebec MPs who were just uncomfortable with uh, Pierre Poilievre's style. Um, you know, Alain Reyes, uh, Joël Gaudet have said things that suggest that, like you said, they might be willing to walk. So if this race, whether or not Jean Charest and Pierre Poilievre are the two front runners, uh, I think, you know, they're probably going to generate the most attention. Um, so in some ways, they'll be seen as, as the two front runners. Uh, is there a risk of this kind of uh, split having long-term effects and also just the kind of rhetoric we've heard from Poilievre's camp that Charest is a liberal? If you're someone who likes Charest, if you're a Quebec conservative, does that have a, while it might have a short-term gain in terms of winning the leadership, does it have a long-term potential to be really problematic? Could this be a really dangerous leadership race? Well, we're already there. I mean, we are effectively already there. I mean, we, we are talking about the positive nature of the leadership contest. That may last an hour or two. Um, but then the reality of those divisions, as Chad excellently outlined, are going to come to the surface. There, for the 30-plus caucus supporters that Pierre Polyev has, there are others in that caucus uh, who are not happy. Uh, and not just because of Bill 21, not, not that very specific issue to Quebec and some in Ontario, but because they don't like the... the 
uber partisan nature of politic that Pierre excels so well at. And they do believe that the Conservative Party has to grow, has to have some appeal. It doesn't need to be liberal light, as uh, Pierre and, and others uh, will accuse people of wanting. As Chad has said before, you can be a Conservative and be proud, but they don't like the style. They don't like the volume. They don't like the in-your-face um, uh, offensive degrading of other people. And there are conservatives who are not happy with, you know, uh, Andrew Shear and Candace Bergen and others, per Denise Batters is a fine person, parading around the Freedom Convoy and, and trying to jump on the PPC grief train and anger train to success. So the one thing we do know historically about the conservatives, um, Eric, is, as you know, is they tend to break up, then get back together and figure it out after they've ripped their family to pieces. So one of the big challenges in this leadership process is to figure out how big a divide the leader, whoever that may be, when this is done, is going to have afterwards. And can that divide be bridged or is it going to have to be a whole nother, other reconstruction uh, is, is, is central. As Chad described, you know, are you acquiring a new party or are you nurturing the assets that you have? And can you do both? Sometimes you can't. I, I do a soft challenge on that, which is to say, remember, new Democrats and conservatives don't vote for aesthetics. Uh, liberals do. So, so liberals will vote for what feels like what, uh, what the mainstream wants and will choose the aesthetically preferable candidate more often than not. Conservatives don't care a whit about it when they vote. Um, Stephen Harper had 11 years of rule and is the most successful uh, conservative leader of this century. And uh, I don't know if you've spent time with former Prime Minister Harper, uh, but charm does not ooze from every pore. Um, <laughs> Uh, if you look at Rob Ford, Rob Ford could never be elected mayor of Toronto because he was aesthetically basically the Tommy Boy character uh, from one of the world's greatest ever films, also filmed in Toronto. Um, uh, conservatives uh, uh, don't vote aesthetic. Uh, so while there's lots of talk and lots of concern about is Pierre too caustic, uh, are his elbows too high, it's not prevented uh, the most successful uh, leader in our time uh, uh, from having 11 years of prime ministerial rule before him uh, and whom, frankly, I think he is soon to be endorsed by. Uh, so I, I'd caution that we often overread aesthetics into these races. Uh, we often overread electability. And that's not where the people who show up and buy the memberships uh, uh, ultimately land. Um, though, to Tim's point, where I will agree with him, races uh, polish. Uh, um, they, they, um, they, they, they wear people down in all the good ways to sand off rough edges. Uh, they teach people how to be, uh, more graceful and speak to a country and learn to be, uh, a parent at the head of a table, uh, when they address an issue, not simply a person winning an argument. And yeah, I mean, does Pierre seek to win every argument? Yeah, that, that's right now what he's hardwired to do. But I think of leaders I've worked for, it's often their leadership that works, that, that, that tempers that instinct more than anything else. But this is a good point of debate. So let's let's pick it up. Chad has forgotten, I guess, Kim Campbell. I think that was aesthetics, my friend, in 1993. And then we saw... It wasn't my choice. Didn't vote for uh, Nor mine. Uh, by, by the way, it's her birthday today. Oh, well, happy birthday for the minister. Uh, but, but but on this point about PR, because I think this is going to be a central discussion in the leadership, and I'm glad Chad has brought it, brought it up. 
Can you make the Harper comparison? Yeah, agreed. Uh, Stephen Harper is not warm and fuzzy, but even his critics would tell you he is substantive and thoughtful in terms of his process. They may not like the choices that he made, but at least you felt you were dealing with a grown-up. Go the back to the recording 0304. That's not yeah, how it was done. Well, but there were the, he he didn't have the if if Harper is substantive, Pierre is seen as snarky, as seen as snide, as seen as um, a product of a political machine that has produced more mechanics than leaders. So Pierre's challenge during this race is going to be to demonstrate that he's not just a mechanical automaton that grew up in an era where hardcore hardball strategy was at play. I, I talk as you guys do to real human beings not involved in politics. And the, the, the reaction that you get around Pierre Polyev is different than what you used to get around Stephen Harper, because Chad and I are old enough to remember that. Eric, you're only a kid, but the, there is this embedded dislike of Pierre Polyev among people outside the party. But as Chad will correct me in a moment of set in set for saying that is you win in the party. But no, the flip side I'd give you as a challenge isn't that it's that he's got shockingly high name rec uh, for a guy yes, here in cabinet uh, who's a backbench critic higher than Shearhead. He's starting ahead. So yeah, he used sharp elbows uh, to get known. Uh, but he has a much higher degree of awareness than a guy with that political CV uh, would have to date. Uh, so I think that there's a there's a, a polarizing uh, risk uh, that Tim's right to point out. Um, but but he's used it deftly, um, and and he's tried to build a constituency that is more. Um, you know, the former Speaker of the House. I'm blanking on his name all of a sudden. Paul, uh, tall, skinny guy with dark hair, uh, vice presidential candidate. Um, Paul uh, Ryan. Paul Ryan. Uh, I, I think he, he's tried to build himself more in the Paul Ryan. If you go into the deep YouTube pieces explaining inflation and explaining money supply, that he sees himself as being someone who's more than two angry talking points deep. But what what is what are all screenplays about and what are all leaderships about? Proving growth and proving depth. Uh, so he's got 185 days to answer, you know, frankly, Tim's call, which is show me there's more. Yeah, well, this is his first run for leadership. You mentioned his CV. You can think of Jean Charest. He's run for leadership for the PCs back in 93. Um, and uh, you can think of Patrick Brown, who obviously knows how to win a leadership race. Leslie Lewis is another person who is actually going to be in her second race. Uh, when she got in back in 2020, she wasn't that well known. Um, and she ended up doing quite well. She finished in first in terms of raw votes on the second ballot. So it was just the point system that eliminated her. Um, she's in the running. She now has at least what she has that leadership race under her belt. Uh, how much of a role can she play? First of all, Chad, does she have a chance to win? Yes. Uh, particularly if more candidates enter the race. Mm -hmm. She's already proven uh, she can jump to the top because values voters for whom... Uh, uh, um, social conservative issues in particular matter, view her or did in a previous race as a true believer uh, and their ally. And uh, her appeal uh, as a, frankly, a non-conventional, I mean, uh, first black woman uh, uh, leader of the conservative party would be a big moment. Uh, that, that would be uh, a big announceable. Uh, 
But what I think we're seeing here is, um, remember, leaderships are often auditions. Not everyone plays to win. I think Scott Atchison is playing uh, a game which says, I am a white male member of the Ontario caucus, and I have zero chances of getting into a cabinet uh, by running as a leadership candidate, lifting my name ID, uh, building a constituency in the party. I might now be viable for a senior critic seat or cabinet seat. Uh, but do I think the Scott Atchison campaign team believes they're winning? No. The Lesson Lewis team, I think, has two paths. Uh, yes, we might become leader if uh, all the stars aligned for us. But more importantly, uh, we might be the, the, the most powerful deputy leader in modern history uh, coming out of this. Uh, so wait to see. Tim? Well, to, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily share the same optimism uh, that Chad, Chad does that she could win, but I think she can be extremely influential in any different capacity. But I want to pick up on the other point that's made there, which again has to concern Pierre a little bit. As we've seen in these the other two leadership races, more candidates create more dynamics and create more narratives that play uh, out during a leadership race. And they also create potentially more lines of attack on you, which sometimes can be reinforcing because you are then deemed as the uh, as the person who receiving all of those attacks must be the substantive one, the one who can win. Um, but as we are seeing in the uh, sad circumstances in the Ukraine, when war happens and a leadership campaign is war, anything can happen. It's not as predictable as you scripted out to be when you're running. So whether it's Leslie Lewis, Scott Atchison, Roman Baber, uh, you know, six, seven candidates in this race is not to the wishes and desires of Pierre Polyev, because he's now got five or six different angles of competition coming at him. So where Leslie Lewis, back to your point about Leslie Lewis, uh, I think if anybody other than Leslie Lewis wins, they would be stupid, not depending how she performs in this campaign, which one assumes will be as good or better than she did before, not to put her into a continuing position of, of leadership. She has the potential to be a huge asset for the Conservative Party of Canada. She's clearly diagnosed that. And good for her uh, for which is getting, why Aaron Aaron O'Toole yeah. took a, an environmental lawyer, uh, a black female member, and excluded her from his shadow cabinet entirely, yeah. uh, proving his wisdom once again as uh, the least successful uh, conservative leader of the modern era, other than Kim Campbell. Uh, if I can just push back a tiny little bit, I think that Leslie Lewis sure, does have sure, some risk sure. for the for the conservatives with the kind of stuff that uh, she's said in the past about vaccines and and a socialist coup in Canada. I think there is. Uh, I think the ex more exposure could make more trouble for the Conservatives, but I think that is probably what Aaron O'Toole was deciding. And if he had won, uh, he would have been a genius, I suppose, but he did not win uh, the, the election last time. I, I um, like going down the political science nerd route, particularly because uh, uh, some people uh, like to be introduced to those crazy strands. Remember, Mulroney had in his caucus a member named Bill Dom who uh, had two issues. He refused to implement the metric system at his gas station and he wanted the restoration of the death penalty. Uh, and he was a popular MP and a popular member of caucus. You are allowed to have ideas outside of the mainstream uh, and still be a member of parliament. Uh, uh, and, and I think that um, one of the things the conservative party 
And frankly, the New Democratic Party confronts much better than the Liberal Party, which is to say, you do not have to have every thought in your head scripted by the damn leader's office. Um, the, the, let's remember the great diversity and freedom of thought, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says that if you are a member of a religion and choose to obey the directive of your religion on values issues, you are not allowed to have that thought anymore because my office demands you change it. And if it's not in your heart changed, you have to lie in public if you want to be part of my cool club with all the cool hair kids and sit at our table in the cafeteria. So remember, the conservative coalition tolerates a little bit of ideological diversity. Leaderships are where you get to, to let the dogs off the leash on that a bit and let it run. And we are at a moment of such a deeply frustrated, tired, mm -hmm. uh, mentally exhausted country because of COVID and now an economic crisis, now foreign affairs crisis added on to that. Some people just want to walk into their front yard and, and yell like this is this, if, if anyone hasn't read or watched Patty Chayefsky's network, like open your window and scream, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. That's, that's the moment we're in. And the leadership has to allow a little bit of that, but so do all the political parties if they want to be viable in the next election. The only thing I would push back on you, and this is so civil in the way we push back on this podcast, if only Canadian discourse could be like this. Eric is in the um, in, in the sins of commission uh, for conservatives around vaccines and the way they dealt with vaccine mandates and should there or shouldn't be. Leslie Lewis's crimes were worthy, perhaps, of a parking ticket. Uh, you do have, again, you know, to that particular issue, which I find really fascinating. You have Pierre Polyev accepting last week the endorsement of Andrew Scheer. I mean, <laughs> that in and of itself is worthy of a novelletta as to how all of that played out, given some of the uh, leadership team of Mr. Polyev's campaign, who, like me and others, were cheerleading for the demise of, of Mr. Scheer. And I, I, do you in, want to invite that comparison? Because Mr. Scheer, Mr. Polyev have a very interesting shared history, although Mr. Polyev was not a fake insurance broker, nor uh, was his citizenship challenged. But Mr. Scheer, like Mr. Polyev, their, their practical experience has been from staffer to member of parliament and um, inflammatory language and approaches about all of this. But that doesn't seem to bother Mr. Polyev, and perhaps it's for the reason that Chad rightly speaks to, there are many conservatives who will not have the same animus and anger towards Andrew Scheer that the rest of us did and, and will welcome some of the sidelines he's stepped across and out of. It's curious when you're a really young New Democrat or a really young liberal or of a different gender or a different race and you're elected very young, what a virtue it is. Yeah. It's very curious when it's a conservative uh, uh, what a deficit it is. That's an interesting point. It, we're getting. Uh, I've never more... heard Ruth Ellen Brasso openly criticized for being a soulless partisan and having no real resume, uh, uh, elevating from her role in the hospitality industry to parliament. Well, uh, I'd suggest that that criticism was there at the beginning. It was there, yeah. It was uh, there. But and uh, and she grew into the role, I suppose. So I guess it dep depends on what you do with it. But uh, we're st we're starting to get a little long. So I do want to just uh, one more thing on Leslie Lewis. Um, what happens with her supporters? Uh, we've seen in the past with social conservative voters, uh, whether or not they're told by their, you know, their, their candidate how to vote. Brad Trost told his people not to back Andrew Scheer. They did anyway. Um, Leslie Lewis's people went behind uh, Aaron O'Toole. So 
Is it correct to assume that her supporters are primarily going to go to Pierre Poilievre, even if places no, like Campaign Life Coalition say no? This is one of these things where the campaign matters. So any mm-hmm. new issue that emerges in the campaign that is, from a public policy perspective, hollow and stupid, is actually going to be a proxy for getting uh, preferential ballot support from other candidates. So watch for the emergence of the stupid virus. Uh, watch for a weird, arcane uh, battle that's really about the purity of conservatism that's through some small proxy issue. Um, and uh, that will be uh, for, uh, because remember, we've got three types of candidates in this race. We've got candidates who uh, are running, uh, believing in a conservative party, wanting to make a conservative party bigger and stronger. We have candidates running who believe the conservative party is broken and needs to be fixed. And then we have values candidates and angry candidates. Uh, the first two pools are largely incompatible with each other. So uh, both pools are going to have to suck up to the values voters and the angry voters. Uh, so they're going to have to throw some red meat. Uh, um, that's why the Bill 21 thing is so mm-hmm. toxic uh, to, to a potential Shara campaign. So, so I'd be looking for what becomes that proxy issue that will emerge. You'll see it probably as the first issue resulting from major attacks in the first debate. Um, but I, it, it'd be something I'd track against what becomes the new weird issue of this debate. And it'll either be carbon centered, uh, maybe foreign policy plus carbon, uh, or it'll be something as legacy of COVID vaccines is my guess. But is there a possibility of, of a Lewis supporter going to Jean Charest as their second? Uh, you'd have to construct a pretty weird uh, uh, construct there, but uh, certainly every candidate every candidate who's got a responsible campaign manager who's looks at the previous two races says, I have to run two campaigns. I have to run the campaign for my first ballot support and I have to run the campaign for my preferential right. supports. And it's not like the deal that Gerard Kennedy and Stefan Zion made that uh, if they yeah, were close yeah. and one dropped off, one yeah, would become yeah, yeah. leader. The leaders can't transfer this ballot. Uh, this has got to be something where you appeal to the members. And remember, it's not successive rounds of voting. It's all done yeah. in the same day. Yeah. Uh, so that's where that extended period between June 3rd and September 10, uh, all the art comes in, uh, in what you put on the table and why things like the debates will matter. Yeah. Tim, I don't know if you have any uh, to add to that. I am silenced by Chad's brilliance and completely agree. Well, that would be then the moment to maybe wrap up. Uh, We could talk a little bit about Patrick Brown. He's not officially in yet, so maybe we'll wait until he he gets into the race before we um, break down his path. But clearly, he's another contender. There's other names that might still come forward. Isn't it great, though? Like, let's just... I, I mistakenly called him the mayor of Barrie uh, the last time we spoke, as opposed to the mayor of Brampton. Obviously, he's the former MP for Barrie uh, and a city councillor in Barrie, but now the mayor of Brampton. Isn't it great, though, that uh, as, a, as a pre-campaign launch, that uh, Premier Charest was cleared of all of the corruption uh, <laughs> he was accused of in Quebec, and Mayor Brown has now been cleared of the massive financial and sexual scandal that ended his leadership of the Ontario Provincial Party. It's just, it's always nice to have a clean slate. Uh, you know, I believe in second chances. Uh, so, you know, good news all around. Listen, it says the, the true blue, proud to be conservative, Chad Rogers drinking his Starbucks.
It is a perfect way to. Look, I am a cliche. I will admit. I am a cliche. <laughs> All right. Well, there'll be still plenty to talk about, and I'm really happy we can talk about it for the next six months. I'm, I don't know if you guys are happy, but I'm happy about that. I will put a, a, a pin in at some point late in this process, or even after this process. Um, I, I mentioned Ian Brody, uh, uh, Professor Brody, uh, at the start of this. He's got a great book uh, about his time serving in government uh, for uh, political science nerds who, who want to read about a practitioner who was a student of public administration mm -hmm. on the academic side, uh, then practiced it as chief of staff. Um, Brody's technical view of all this will be quite a fascinating Agreed, uh, yeah. a master's session in itself, uh, not just because of his arc, but because you don't often have someone running a party leadership process who is themselves uh, a professional academic uh, in the top ranks of the political science class, uh, who served as chief of staff to a prime minister, who's run the party uh, mm -hmm. in question. Um, that that's a pretty unique kind of ace in the hole on the process side for the for the party to have. And Brody, for those of us who know him and have dealt with him, brooks uh, no silliness uh, and is not someone uh, who has trouble figuring out what he thinks about an issue. All right. Well, maybe worth the chat at some point. So uh, this was definitely worth the chat and we'll, we'll certainly be meeting again. So thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Thanks again to Chad Rogers and Tim Powers for coming on the show. That'll be it for the Writ Podcast. If you like this podcast, please remember to share it widely, give it a rating or review, or better yet, subscribe to theRit.ca if you aren't already a subscriber. Okay, that's it for this week. Keep safe and thanks for listening.